some years ago, it was about 11.30 at night, I was ready to drop off to sleep, and just as I'm in that netherworld where you're about to go into pleasant slumber, I heard this beep, I thought, oh, it's a smoke alarm batteries, and I... I just hate it in that why don't they ever go off at 3 p.m. or at 5 p.m.? You know, they always have to go off in the middle of the night. We had vaulted ceilings. I knew it would be a big deal. I'd have to go down and get a ladder and the batteries. I thought, I I don't want to hassle that. Just with force of will, I'm going to make myself go to sleep. But every time I started to do that, a beep would shake me up. And finally, I gave in, went down to the garage, got the ladder, put it up, got the battery changed, got back in bed, looking forward to a night of sleep. And after a couple minutes, beep, wrong one. And so I get the ladder out. There's a smoke alarm in the hallway, change that battery, get it in. Now my adrenaline's running, right? So I get into bed a little too enthusiastically and kind of catapult my wife about two feet in the air. She clues in on what's going on. Finally, I think we're okay. I lay back. Beep. I, oh, I can't believe it. And so I go out and there's another smoke alarm in my daughter's bedroom, just like six linear feet from the hallway. Who even knew? So I change that, get back in bed, huffing and puffing. And Lisa's like, did you, did you finally fix it? I said, I didn't just fix it. I conquered it. I am Lord and master of this house. And you know what happened next? <laughs> Lisa knows me so well, even in the dark, she could read my expression. And she said, Gary, whatever you're thinking of doing, please don't. (laughs) And I quoted her my favorite line from Rocky too. Honey, I never stopped you to ask me. I never asked you to stop being a woman. Please don't ask me to stop being a man. And I got out of bed. I put up my ladder. I yanked off every smoke alarm I could find upstairs, threw them all in a box, took them into the garage. Lisa was appalled. Like, what if there's a fire tonight? I said, as long as the fire takes out the smoke alarms with it, God's will be done. I'm sick of this. I'm going to get some sleep. Two minutes pass. Beep. Fine. We need an exorcist, okay? Obviously, it's not enough for a handyman to deal with. Well, I just, there's nothing I could do. I'd just given up. So I went through another couple rounds of beeps. And my son was in high school at the time. He came home. He had a midnight curfew. So he'd have to check in, just let us know that he was there on time and whatnot. So he came in, knocked on our door, walks in, starts telling us about his evening. And then one of those beeps goes off. And Graham goes, huh. And he walks over to my dresser where I had my brand new cell phone. Hey, Dad, did you know you missed a call? (laughs) I wanted to throw that thing across the room. I was so frustrated because I'd spent so much time and energy trying to stop the beeps. But I was treating the symptoms without treating the real problem at all. And, you know, as one who now does a lot of pastoral counseling with marriages, I see that same thing happening in so many homes. We have these symptoms that irritate us and frustrate us, but we're not dealing with the real problems. We're not dealing with the root issue. And so those problems keep frustrating us. But here's the root of that that I've seen in so many marriages. The spiritual principle is this. We were made for more than each other. If you're thinking of getting married or if you're married and frustrated in your marriage or just okay in your marriage, but you think there's more, a key idea to understand is that we were made for more than just each other. 
Now, it might seem rather odd that a guy who writes on marriage and goes across the country to speak on marriage is talking about there's something even more than marriage. But to have the best marriage possible or to make the wisest marital choice, we have to deal with the root issue. And that is that God made us for more than just a happy marriage, more than just each other. It's like this. When somebody decided to create the ice cream sundae, what did they start with? The ice cream, didn't they? They didn't come up with a maraschino cherry and say, what do I put under here? They didn't even come up with whipped cream and say, what would go good under whipped cream? They started with the ice cream and the whipped cream and the cherry and the sauce and all that is, is to build on what the basis is. And in, as rich as marriage is, as wonderful as marriage can be, it's not the ice cream in a successful, fulfilling life. It's still just the topping. And if we don't understand that, we're always trying to put out the symptoms of what frustrates us rather than deal with the issues. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6.33, about how we can suffocate our marriage when we ask too much of it. Matthew 6.33 is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, this is the way to a fulfilling life. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then there's this promise. If you do that, he says, All these other things that everybody else chases after, you'll get those as well. But the doorway is to continue to keep seeking my kingdom and my righteousness. We need a magnificent obsession, which is what I call this, a, a fixated focus on what does it mean to seek God's kingdom today? What does it mean to seek his righteousness? And that's what gives life to our relationships. If we're not doing this, or if we used to do it and no longer do it, what happens is we make the big things this little, and we make the little things in life big. And you can't fix it when you're focused on the little things. I'm I'm terrible at this. I, I see my sinful self in so many different ways because it changes throughout marriage. Since Lisa and I are now empty nesters, she travels with me a whole lot more than she used to. But I had had a decade and a half of my routines and getting on board a plane and whatnot. And one of the things I like is that I get on planes right away. I'm one of the first that gets on the plane. I'm platinum status on United. I've flown over a million miles on United alone. And so one of the things they let me do is they get on the plane first. Now, it's no big deal, but it's just that's what I always do. And I have my routines. Technically, I'm not OCD but I live in the neighborhood right next door to it. And so I I, I don't like it when they get shaken up. And so when Lisa and I were on a flight together, the flight left at 1130. And so about 1059, just about when they start boarding, Lisa said, well, I guess I should go to the ladies room now. What do you mean? We're we're about to board. She goes, well, you can go ahead and board. I, I, but I, I I just want to go. I, you can't do that because I'd feel stupid boarding without my wife. And what if something happened and she was caught and then I fly to other part of the country for a marriage conference and I left my wife behind. I mean, I just thought this isn't going to work. At least it's no big deal. If you want to get on, you just get on. You can put your bag up, but I'm going to go. And so I'm I'm waiting for her and I, I can't tell you the unease I felt. As they're boarding and they're boarding, they get to group two, they get to group three. And then she's coming and obviously doesn't get how crucial it is. Because it's just this common stroll. Oh, look at there are planes out there. Who knew? Oh, I don't think I've ever seen that painting or sculpture before. I'm like, honey, I mean, it's such a rush. Now, it was no big deal waiting for her. We still got her bags up. But it told me something about my heart. I live by this creed. 
don't inconvenience me. That's what I seek first. You say, How, what does that have to do with Matthew 6, 33? At that moment, I'm not seeking first God's kingdom. I'm not seeking first to bless my wife or what's best. It's, don't inconvenience me. And when I drive, don't inconvenience me. If I'm at a restaurant, don't inconvenience me. It can even happen in a church. Sin can go over. A while back, I was preaching at a church, and the worship leader just slammed my time. They had ridiculous, they had 15 minutes between services. And so the pastor said, Gary, you got to finish right now, but here's when we're going to get you up. And the worship leader started his last song when I was supposed to get up. And I knew they wouldn't cut announcements, and I'm just, I can't believe, what am I going to cut? What am I going to do that? And the worst thing is, it's one of those songs that had a lot of those, uh, 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 oh, uh, uh. I thought, can you not even cut out the uh-ohs? I mean, I, I get that a lot of people like the worship better than they like the teaching, but are the uh-ohs really more anointed than what my words will be? I mean, okay, sing the words, but give me the uh-ohs. But no, he's saying every uh-oh ten times over. And I just, but here's the thing. It is an honor that any church would ever let me speak for 30 seconds, much less 30 minutes. And at that moment in my heart, I'm a consumer. I'm not a server. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor others. Those are sins that lay buried. But what is wonderful about marriage is that it has a way of revealing those sinful things in our heart and giving God an opportunity to deal with it. And that's why when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's warning us that we often seek other things and we become like a a, a physical invalid is what we become like spiritually. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody who's really sick, but they can get at a certain point where just to barely touch them sends their nerves just singing. I mean, it's not in their mind. It's real. You try to shake their hand and it feels like you're crushing it. You just try to caress their cheek. It feels like you're punching them in the nose. You can't touch them without causing them pain. It's just the way their nerves are going right then. And we can be the same way spiritually when the disease of our selfishness and our self-centeredness isn't challenged. What happens is if it's socially, if somebody speaks to us, if they don't speak to us, if they notice us or don't notice us or notice us in the wrong way, we're like that invalid. Our, Our spiritual nurse sing. We're so frustrated. We're so upset because we're letting the little things be big. Our life isn't set on seeking first the kingdom of God. And so we're not in a place where we can have productive relationships or even to find a productive relationship. You know, we reduce sin so often to the scandalous things in life. We look at what the Ten Commandments say. We look at the list of sins in the Bible. But so often it's these tiny attitudes that I'm talking about that rip us away from being like Christ. We, we don't really realize it, but it's our motivations that lead us to that. We don't seek first the kingdom of God. We seek first successful kids. We don't seek first the kingdom of God. We seek first self-respect. We don't seek first the kingdom of God. We, we seek first happy children or a, a big bank account or whatever it is. Whatever that lesser aim is ultimately is going to undercut our lives and it will undercut our relationships. And Matthew 6.33 is to call us to recognize that we should not let anything lesser steal our first focus. Remember, it says, seek first the kingdom of God other than his kingdom. And, and I can't tell you how much this serves a family and a marriage. 
Because what you need for two people to become one is a common purpose and a common unity. And that has to be found in the kingdom of God. Husbands and wives can legitimately disagree about what to do with their money, where to live, what to do with their time, what to focus on with their kids. But when it's under the rubric of seeking first the kingdom of God, a lot of those disagreements are settled. When that is the objective that is bigger than both of their opinions, but it's the force that holds their marriage together, that's when marriage becomes intimate. That's when it really begins to take off. And some of you might say, well, what is the kingdom of God? I mean, is it just up there in heaven? A theological understanding of the kingdom of God, it really could be described as this. That the kingdom of God, just to put it in layman's terms, is simply God working through his people to accomplish his purposes. It's his dynamic reign. God is active. He's working through his people to accomplish his purposes, whether that's teaching in an elementary school, whether it's working in a bank, whether it's, it's, it's working on a construction site, whatever it is, whether you're at home, it's the sense that when we wake up, God has a purpose. He's actively doing something and he's created me to be a part of it. This life isn't about me. It's not about not being inconvenienced. It's not about becoming financially successful or being respected. Today, my first focus should be to seek his kingdom. What does he want me to do to build his kingdom? And how do I grow in righteousness? How am I transformed? If you don't do this, eventually, those little obsessions, instead of the magnificent obsession, they'll become boring. You'll sense this listlessness. You'll sense this lack of purposelessness. You'll feel like there's just got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to my marriage than this. And you'll blame the wrong things. You'll focus on the symptoms instead of the disease. But the problem is really that you're living less than a human life. You're, You're living almost like the animals without that eternal focus and purpose. When my daughter was in high school, we were out on a run on a country road. We came up on the squirrel that had been hit by a car. It was just smashed on the side of the road. I got real kind of melancholy and meditative. I said, Kelsey, look at that squirrel. She goes, oh, that's disgusting. I go, I know. I, I'm so glad I'm not a squirrel. I said, I'm just thankful God didn't make me a squirrel. Imagine how pathetic a life it is. You're afraid of everything. Eating nuts running around in the rain, worried about cats and dogs. And then at the end of that stupid, pathetic life, you get hit by a car. Your innards are pecked out by a crow. I'm so glad God didn't make me a squirrel. Just like, Dad, we're on a run. Chill out. I mean, she didn't want me to take her there. But you know what? God could have made me to be a squirrel. He could have made you to be an earthworm or a cow or one of the crows who eats the squirrels. I mean, how gross is that? But God made you a human being. And in creating you a human being, he put his own image in you. So he created you not just to have impact on this earth, not just to be happy on this earth, but to have eternal purpose. And if you try to be fulfilled without that end in mind, it'll never work. Now, there'll be moments if you become infatuated with someone, you get a new exciting job, you can become intoxicated for a while and forget your greater purpose. But there'll be those moments of clarity that break through when you say, there's just got to be more to life than this. 
And what happens so often as Christians is that we think the easiest fix isn't to change my priorities. It isn't to change what I'm seeking. It's to change the person I'm married to. That will make my life better. Not if we change partners without changing our lesser obsessions. Here's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to make this practical. But spirituality, the seeking first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's not just the paint on the car that makes the car look nice. So often we just throw a little, a a few Christian principles over our marriages to make them better and easier and more fun. I'm saying it's so much deeper than that. Spirituality isn't the coat of paint on the car. It's the engine that makes the car move. And I don't even want to talk to you about the symptoms in your marriage if the engine isn't running properly. Why would I paint a car that can't even move? And yet couples come in and you've got to make my husband more pleasant. You've got to make my wife more understanding. And they're not dealing with the engine that is broken down. So in your understandable pursuit of a better marriage, or if you're single, your understandable pursuit of a marriage that will be intimate and fulfilling, you have to understand that we have to focus first on seeking the kingdom of God. How do we do that? I want to talk about three things that Jesus tells us to do there. When we want to see God's kingdom spread throughout the earth, the easiest place, the first place we start to do that is in our own hearts. If you want to seed a piece of ground to a conquering king, the best piece of ground to seed is your own. Okay, God, you're mine. My, my, my adoration, my focus, it belongs to you. It's what love comes from. 1 John 4.19 tells us this. We love because he first loved us. And the challenge so many Christian spouses fall into, the, the, the problem is that they try to love their spouse without receiving God's love. They, they know God loves them intellectually. They come to church on Sunday. They sing about God's love. But they're not daily drawing down that love. And so they live with sort of an empty tank. And they just try to love their spouse out of commitment or out of the goodness of their heart. And it just doesn't work. Jared read us Ephesians 5. Men, because it's talking to men, we cannot love our wives that way if we're not receiving God's love every day. If we're not waking up, God, you still love me? God, you, you still forgive me? I, you accept me? You affirm me? Just, I'm good. Now I'm free to focus on my wife. But if I'm not receiving God's love, then I'm asking my wife to make up for it. I'm asking my wife to accept me because I need to be accepted, not realizing that God has already accepted me. Which is why, if I could just have a little aside here, some of you singles who would seriously date someone who's not even a believer, here's what you're telling me. I think God doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy is so incredible. This woman is so amazing. I think she can love me and I think she can love our future kids without receiving God's love. I I think the Holy Spirit is overrated. I think there are some people so heroic in their love, they don't need God to love others. And they're so wise in their own understanding, they don't need to be in love with Scripture to grow and increase in their understanding. I don't think God knows what he's talking about. And again, infatuation, it's going to feel like that for a while. But if you marry someone who doesn't have that daily renewal of receiving God's love, they will run out of their own love. 
And you'll find that out the hard way sooner or later because it's a universal human condition. The Bible is honest about this. All of us have in our heart this desire. I just want to find someone who loves me. Famous line from so many movies. We just have that one person who always has our back, who is always there. And the Bible tells us this is this is built into our hearts. It's a universal longing. Look at Proverbs nineteen twenty two. What does a man desire? Unfailing love. If you're living and breathing, if you have a soul, you just want this unfailing love. The problem is we look in the wrong places. We become infatuated and we think we found it. But Proverbs warns us it's not what we think. Proverbs 26 says this. Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. It's telling us, look, people will come into your life and they're going to be infatuated and they're going to be wonderful people and they're going to focus on you. And for a while, it will feel like I finally found the unfailing love. But it says, just give it time. It's going to fade. They'll claim to have it. But in the end, you're not going to find that because there's only one place, according to scripture, where we can have this unfaithful love that we were created to experience. And we're told where that is in Exodus chapter 20, verse six, God speaking says, I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, why is this so important? Because if we walk around as thirsty people, we can't have happy marriages. We can't make wise marital choices. When we're thirsty, all of our relationships will suffer. And too many of us, even those of us who know Jesus, because we're not embracing God's lavish, unfailing love, we're like the three amigos barely making it as they travel through the desert. Consider this. Some of you are like Steve Martin. You're going through the desert in life and you're thirsty and you just get a few drops. It doesn't really serve you. It doesn't strengthen you, but it just keeps you from dying. 
Some might be more like Martin Short, where you go into your canteen, instead of being pure water, you get dirt, you get dust. It's even worse. You're destroying yourself trying to slake your thirst. But we're called to be, according to Matthew 6.33, and I can't really believe I'm saying this from a Christian stage, but we're to be like Chevy Chase, all right? The water pouring freely, our thirst quenched, that we have enough left over, we can spit it out, we can pour it out. God wants to offer his love abundantly, and everything changes when we don't live with this thirst. Otherwise, what happens is that you'll date thirsty if you're single. And I don't want you to date thirsty. I've seen what happens when people date thirsty. A woman came up to me at a book table one time and said, Gary, I've met the perfect man. He's everything I dreamed of. We've been friends for eight years and he often tells me, you know, my mom says that we should get married someday and maybe we should go out on a real date sometime. And and he always talks about how that should be, but he's never really asked me out on a real date, but he's just perfect for me. And I looked at her and I said, as gently as I could, with all due respect, when you were a little girl, I don't believe you dreamed of a man who would dangle you on the end of a line not want you to meet someone else so that he can just kind of keep you there in case he doesn't find someone better, never really honor you by actually giving you a date, just kind of throwing these little morsels your way that maybe someday he might take you out. Is that the man you dreamed of? And I started getting wet. She goes, no. I said, and tell me about your relationship with your dad. She dropped her eyes and said, well, we don't really have one. I said, why do you think I asked you that? Look, some of you have been really hurt in life. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your social circle. And people have hurt you. And you've looked for the wrong place for that thirst to be met. And what happens is that you allow people to treat you in a way that somebody who's not thirsty wouldn't allow. It is dangerous to date in this world when you're spiritually thirsty. And guys, we do it as much as women. One guy pled with me, Gary, what am I supposed to do? I've been trying, I've been dating this woman for six years. For, I, I've been trying to get her to marry me. She just isn't quite ready to commit. How long is too long to wait? I wanted to say four years longer than you've waited, but I, I, I tried to be a little gentler than that because when we're that thirsty, we let people treat us in ways that just isn't right. Just as I don't want you to date thirsty, though, I don't want you to be married thirsty because it, it undercuts the whole relationship. A, a thirsty wife wakes up one morning and she goes into the master bathroom and there's a wet towel on the floor. And instead of taking the two seconds it takes to hang it up, her thought is, see, I knew he didn't love me. He told me he would hang up the wet towel. And we've talked about it and he doesn't do it. He hates me. I knew he didn't love me. Now, it would take her three seconds and it would be done, but she will obsess about that wet towel all day long. She can't wait until she gets home. See, see right here, the wet towel. What did we talk about? And wives, I'm not excusing the wet towels. And guys, I'm asking a personal favor. Please hang up your towels this week, okay? I don't want you to say, Gary said it's not a big deal. I don't want your wives to hate me. But it's just the case in point that you understand. We make the little things big because it's a statement. We don't feel loved. And so every little slight, we're like that invalid. You can't even touch him without him screaming. And that's the way we are spiritually. But when we love because he first loved us, we're more like a person who, let's say, Warren Buffett decided to 
launch an experiment and he gives $1 billion to one person, no conditions attached, just to see what happens. And you get to be that person. And you're suspicious, you don't believe it, but then you see the deposit in your bank, you can't believe it, suddenly you have a billion dollars. You've hated your job, you've hated your boss, so you call that day, say, hey boss, I'm not coming in today. Why, you're not feeling well? No, I'm feeling great. I just got a billion dollars. But by the way, you're fired, I just bought your company, all right? Clean out your desk. So it's a great day, and as you're going there to make sure your boss leaves the premises, you see a guy that you had lunch with the week before. He borrowed 10 bucks. He forgot his wallet. And he says to you, hey, look, I know I owe you 10 bucks, but I had to fill a prescription for my daughter today. Can I pay you next week? Now, if you have a soul, if you are human with a heart, you will look at that guy and you'll say, hey, your money's not good with me. I just got a billion dollars. What do I care about a $10 debt? In fact, you're going to take your wallet out here. Have $100. Take your family out to a real meal. This is a great day. I want to bless you. And that's how we're to be spiritually, that God has lavished his love on us. Not drop by drop, but he's poured it out on us. And when we receive it, we're not worried about $10 debts. Because God has made us billionaires. But when you try to date or be married... And you're focusing, and it's a different issue for many of you, but are you focusing on those $10 debts? It tells you you're not seeking first God's kingdom. You're not letting his love capture your heart. So how do we get to that place? It's not just knowing it. It's not just hearing me talking about it. Psalm 49.8 tells us what we have to do. 48.9, I'm sorry. Psalm 48.9 says this, Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. It is what the gospel is unleashed. We have to realize God loves us. God forgives us. God accepts us. God affirms us. God celebrates us. We have to remind ourselves of this every day. And every day I skimp on this, I demand more and more of my wife. I demand more and more of my kids. I demand more and more of my coworkers. I'm like that guy who's worried about $10 debts. But we're to meditate on God's unfailing love. But it's not just offering up our hearts. It's also offering up our strength. Seeking first the kingdom of God is recognizing that we were called not just to be loved and forgiven, but we were made for a mission. We were called to do the unique work that God created you and gifted you to do. And as a couple, if you're not fulfilling that work, there will likewise be that listlessness. Karen and Kevin Miller were both believers when they got married, serving the Lord. And then they fell in love as couples often do. And Karen says this, when Kevin popped the question, will you marry me? No one asked us a bigger question. Why do you want to get married? At the time, the question would have bordered on blasphemy. After all, Kevin and I were in love. Anyone could see that. We shared a commitment to Christ. Who needed better reasons than those? And so like so many young couples, they got married, they had a good few years, but then listlessness started to set in. There's a little bit of boredom. And then they think, you know, we're still so young and is this really all that there is in life? It just wasn't quite the same. And then there was a need in their church. One of the pastors came to them and said, we really need somebody to take over the youth group. 
Kevin said that's a rather generous description. It was more like a collection of juvenile delinquents, but they felt like they were the ones in that place, so they went ahead and took them over. It was not an easy task. It was a difficult task. But in giving themselves over to that ministry, something interesting was happening to their marriage. Here's how they describe it. The group literally drove us to our knees. Before each event, we began to pray for the youth and for ourselves. Isn't that interesting? They get involved in ministry. Now suddenly, they're praying together. The group also forced Kevin and me to talk more than we had since we dated, to have something to talk about. We needed to plan together and present a united front to the kids. As we did, we found out a lot about each other. The biggest surprise was that through the process, something good was happening to our marriage. We were working together at something. When we failed, at least it was our failure. And when we succeeded, it was our success. During most of each workday, we were miles apart. But when we led the youth group, we were arm in arm and heart to heart. And you know, that's what so often happens in the contemporary world is that life just pulls us apart. We go to two different places through the best part of our day when we have the most energy. We come back in the evening when we have the less and nothing is really pulling us back together. But by actually giving themselves over to this joint ministry, suddenly they had a reason to pray together. They had things to talk about and it began to rejuvenate their marriage. They discovered what the Millers call a third hunger for marriage. When you look at these three things, we often talk about marriage being for companionship, and it is. Genesis 2.18 says it's not good for man to be alone. We talk about raising children. Genesis 1.28 says be fruitful and multiply. But the third hunger is what's also in, in Genesis chapter 128, and that's joint fulfilling service where God says that we are blessed and then we're to be fruitful, but then we're to fill the earth, we're to subdue it, and we're to rule over it, over every living thing. This is really the Old Testament version of Matthew 6.33. God says, I didn't make you to be a fish. I didn't make you to be a squirrel. And aren't we all glad he didn't make us to be squirrels? I I made you to have a royal place in my kingdom. Everyone, these aren't super Christians. We're all created to have our place in God's kingdom. And only when we're doing that will it seem like everything is clicking. The Millers put it this way. We hunger for this today. Cooperating together, meshing, working like a mountain climbing team, ascending the peak of our dream. I love this. And then holding each other at the end of the day. God has planted this hunger deep within every married couple. It's more than a hunger for companionship. It's more than a hunger to create new life. It's a third hunger, a hunger to do something significant together. According to God's word, we were joined to make a difference. We were married for a mission. So many couples this weekend are being misled by a stupid movie based on stupid books, thinking that they can renew their passion, that that's the problem. It's short-term and it doesn't work. So often the problem in marriages isn't a lack of passion, it's a lack of purpose. You're living for yourself. You're living for your own happiness. And God loves you too much to let you go on in that state. When Jesus said you find your life by losing it, He could have been speaking to married couples as much as he was to individuals. Marriages without purpose are racing toward boredom. 
It's a magnificent obsession outside the marriage that feeds the marriage. And then third, Jesus says that it's not only just to seek his kingdom, uh, but it's also to seek his righteousness. Now, I know this sounds very religious. I know it doesn't sound very practical, but I actually think this may be one of the most practical parts of scripture you'll ever read. Because if you have someone who is seeking first the righteousness of Christ, what they're doing is dying to the things that destroy a marriage, unkindness, impatience, unrighteous anger. And then if they're pursuing Christ-likeness, they're building the Christ-like qualities that serve a relationship. Patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So by listening to Jesus, you're becoming the type of person who's set up to have a lifelong love. You can have a satisfying marriage because you're dying to the things that destroy marriage. I've said this before that I don't think most couples fall out of love as much as they fall out of repentance. They fall into those little things that just make life miserable. Men, it is very difficult for your wives to be intimate with you when you have unchecked anger or impatience or a critical spirit. Women, it is really difficult for a man to be intimate with a wife who is always tearing him down or comparing him to someone else or who's a drama queen with no peace, filled with anxiety and fear. It's just hard to be joined to someone like that. And so when we seek Christ's righteousness, we let his spirit transform us within, we become two people who can have enjoyment in life together. And so you're worried about transforming your spouse and say, transform yourself. Wake up. How can I become more like Jesus today? How can I be more involved in his service? And then your marriage is blessed. To be honest, in the context of the first century, Jesus was talking about food and clothing when he said Matthew 6.33 because in the first century, those weren't guaranteed. People didn't know if they would have clothes a month from now. They didn't know if they would have meal a month from now. I'm talking to a group of people where I don't think anybody here has a real fear of being naked anytime soon unintentionally. I don't think I'm talking to anybody that really wonders if there'll be a meal next week. You may not have filet mignon, but there'll be something to eat. So I think in a modern context, Jesus would be saying, you know, the world used to seek after food and clothing, but today, what does everybody talk about? Romance, happiness, and fulfillment. And today's world, I think Jesus would say, I know you want that. I know you want a rich marriage. I get that. But the way you get it is to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and then trust me. These other things will be added unto you as well. Because Jesus loves you too much to let you be satisfied to just sit and stew in your ungodliness. He loves you too much to let you have a satisfied life when you're ruled by anger or ruled by lust or ruled by any addiction. He loves you too much to let you live a substandard life when you live only for your comfort or for respect or financial security. He's going to let you be listless in your marriage and listless in your singleness until you wake up and say, the only fulfilling life is that magnificent obsession. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you created us as people made in your image. 
But not just people, but you have entrusted to us your promised Holy Spirit who is so powerful within us when we will surrender and yield. Lord, that sin doesn't have a grip on us. We have power over it by relying on you. And we're not just animals that seek just to find nuts or grass. Father, we're people that have given, been given an eternal vision and purpose. Lord, I pray that we would ask more of you and perhaps less of our marriages as we seek first your kingdom and righteousness in Jesus' name.